Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Jeremy Balenson, the co-author, along with Benjamin Lee, of Exploring the Influence of Haptic and Olfactory Cues of a Virtual Donut on Satiation and Eating Behavior, which should be published in the summer 2018 edition of Presence Teleoperators in Virtual Environments. Presence is the longest established academic journal that is devoted to research into teleoperation and virtual environments. Jeremy Balenson is Professor of Communication at Stanford University and founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. His writings appeared in the Washington Post, Slate, and the San Francisco Chronicle. He's the author of Experience on Demand, what virtual reality is, how it works, and what it can do. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Jeremy Balenson, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, we're here to talk about the paper you co-authored with Benjamin Lee on whether sensory effects in the virtual world can alter consumption patterns in the real world. But your personal area of study is broader than that. How would you describe to someone what it is you do? So my PhD is in cognitive psychology, and for the last uh, just about 20 years, what I've been doing with my colleagues is build VR, but more importantly, test the way that a virtual experience changes the way you think, the way you behave uh, about yourself, about others, uh, by giving you an experience, an experience that you couldn't have otherwise, or perhaps it might be dangerous or impossible to do uh, without VR. How does that virtual experience change the way you behave later on in the world, whether that's a health behavior or about empathy towards others or about uh, how you can learn my research focuses on how virtual experiences change real behaviors. Uh, now, this article, as I mentioned, focuses on smell and touch uh, can, and how they can alter how people approach, in this case, a chocolate donut in the real world. You know, given that current VR technology only focuses really on hearing and sight, how are you able to design this study? Well, you know, our job is to come up with a way to test the psychology of hardware, even if that hardware doesn't exist yet. So in this instance, the big idea behind the study was, you know, let's go away from donuts for a second. Imagine that really healthy food tasted and smelled and looked like unhealthy food. In other words, a lot of us, we like to eat food that may not be so good for us. Imagine that food that was healthy, actually we had the experience of food that we love that may not be as healthy. And so uh, another way of saying this, imagine that you know a vegan patty tasted like the best hamburger that you'd ever had in your life. You know We've just solved climate change in terms of cutting down forests to allow for cattle. We have solved the obesity academic in the United States. A world in which we can eat healthy food and experience it as if it were the food we love actually has epically large health benefits and and benefits to the planet. So in our study, um, to do, you know, active haptics where you have, you know, machines that can make, you know, can make you feel as if there's different shapes uh, dynamically, that's really hard to do. And, and scent objects uh, in VR, olfactory VR, it's not as hard to do to build the sense, but it is hard to integrate that with all the other VR. And so in this study... We chose to uh, go with uh, what we call passive haptics, which is simply, it's a fancy word for a, a plastic donut that we put in your hand. And for a scent, instead of a, uh, an electronic and, and mechanical system, we just simply dipped a Q-tip inside of donut scent and found a way to regulate the amount of scent that it got and, and actually attached that Q-tip to the head-mounted display. And in the study, um, everybody looked down and the first person saw their avatar and uh, 
everybody looked down and they could move their physical hands and their avatar's arm would move with them in the first person. Everybody saw a donut in their hand and they were instructed to bring it up to their face, look at it a number of times. Half the subjects felt the donut and the way we did that is we put a plastic donut in their hand while half the subjects did not feel that plastic donut and half the subjects smelt the donut by having that Q-tip dipped in donut scent while the other half did not. And what we were doing in this study, we were trying to understand, uh, you know, any good chef will know that present matters for taste, how something looks, uh, how it smells, how it, uh, you know, how it feels, the texture, all contribute to the eating experience. In this study, we wanted to see what's the effect of feeling a donut in your hand and smelling a donut on later consumption patterns. And, you know, this is a preliminary study. It was the first time we'd ever done something like this. Not much prior work to go on. We had two competing hypotheses. One was satiation which is that this experience, a virtual experience of smelling and touching this donut would be real enough such that you wouldn't want to eat later on, you would feel satiated. The second one was priming, which is that you're going to get reminded of how great donuts are by smelling it and feeling it, and you're going to want to eat more. And, and, and to be very clear, um, we didn't go in with one prediction or the other. This was an exploratory study. Uh, we had a decent sample size. There was uh, 101 subjects uh, in the study, but um, we didn't know which way it was going to go. So what were the findings? The findings were um, and again, preliminary, but consistent uh, in terms of after the study, subjects had the opportunity to eat some donuts. We, uh, you know, they took the goggles off and they said, you finish this part and now here's some donuts. You know, we're actually doing a taste test so you can write down your comments and we measured the weight of the amount of donuts that they ate and uh, what we found was support for satiation. People who felt the donuts in their hand ate fewer grams of donuts compared to those that didn't feel it and those that smelled the donuts also ate fewer grams uh, of donut compared to those that didn't smell it. So across both uh, those conditions, people ate fewer donuts. In addition, people reported feeling more full. We, you know, we tended to trust self-report less than behavioral data in studies like this, but people actually rated themselves as feeling fuller after they touched the donut uh, compared to not and after they smelled the donut compared to not. So we have two nice findings, one behavioral and one um, uh, self-report that indicate that this feeling and smelling the donuts contributed to uh, eating less and feeling more full. So I guess, is there a next step as far as like, are you going to continue this line of inquiry or are you putting it out there for others to say, okay, here's what we found, go forth and see what else you can find? Yeah, I mean, whether it's from us or other labs, what I want to see is many, many replications. I, you know, I'm trying to be very careful and qualified that we have not solved climate change and the obesity epidemic. However, um, I would love to see, you know, so we're currently doing some ongoing replications. I would love to see other groups uh, get on this uh, research paradigm as well. We're, we're always happy to share our experimental content. If teams want to use our, our stimuli to run their own studies, we're happy to share that. And we want to see more replications, more understanding of the mechanism. My, my, you know, I, I think that taste, you know, using VR scent, touch and sight to alter the subjective experience of taste is going to be a very large, not just academic project, but application to those uh, in the food industry. And I just want to see others engage. I think that'd be fantastic. So now that takes care of this particular report, but you have a book out right now that talks about broader VR issues. And I was wondering if I could ask you some questions about, about I guess, virtual reality and kind of a larger, larger issue in, in society. Yes, please. So let's start with Oculus Rift. Uh, we recorded this interview in May 11th, 2018. I read a pretty glowing review of Oculus Rift in the Washington Post a few weeks ago, and they focused on the fact that the reviewer thought it was a good product, but what was really impressive for that person was, was the cost is 
low enough that it could start bringing more mainstream consumers into the VR world. I guess, would you agree with that conclusion? So most companies in the VR space right now, and there's, you know, five to 10 of them, depending on how broad you talk about these global large tech companies, everybody is moving towards what the, the field is calling standalone products. Uh, you don't need to have a fancy computer. Uh, the, the rendering and the tracking is done right from the goggles themselves. You know, you're in the, you know, one to 200 range as opposed to the five to 600 range. You know, across many of these companies, you're seeing a push towards this, uh, what, what, what the field is calling standalone VR. And I, I believe that the hardware is being quite well received by those that view it. Uh, you know, the one caveat to that is that, yeah, you know, for people that have been studying VR quite, for quite some time, you know, VR is not like pizza. With pizza, even bad pizza is good. You know, bad VR uh, is not good, and you can get dizzy, and, and you can get turned off from the technology fairly quickly. So even though we're going for cheaper and, you know, not needing a dedicated PC to run it, you know, I, I do urge caution in that, you know, when VR is done well and the tracking is, is calibrated properly and, and uh, you can render these scenes uh, at the right frame rate, it feels good. Good. And, it, and it's an amazing experience. I mean, the book is called Experience on Demand because when VR is done right, we treat it as an actual experience or similar to an actual experience. And, and, and I, I love the push for cheaper and, and, and standalone. However, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that the high-end systems, you know, really produce the best experiences. And uh, there's another trend in addition to the standalone, which you mentioned, Chris, there's a, a trend for uh, what's called location-based VR, which is, you know, a fancy word for, you know, I grew up in the 1980s uh, for the arcade model, going to an arcade and playing these games. And in a location-based VR, there is, you know, the tracking is incredible and they're putting in touch and fans and heat uh, and passive haptics like strings hanging from the ceilings that can mimic cobwebs when you walk through them. And, and uh, I, I do like that high-end model for the arcade. Uh, and, and I think the simultaneous push from industry, which is let's have cheap consumer VR, you know, standalone for people to use on, by themselves, but let's also maintain this incredible high-end VR in locations. I, I like that dual approach. Now, you're a scientist and a scholar. You are not in the political world, but I can't help it. I was reading uh, Google's uh, press release a couple days ago about Duplex, their AI voice recognition software, which is just amazing. I mean, I heard that. I, I heard the calls that they put out as examples, and it's almost uncanny to the degree that it's very hard to tell if it's a human. It almost passes the Turing test. It's hard to tell, is it a human or is it a computer? Now, again, this is not necessarily your ballywick, but along with that demonstration, I'm beginning to see articles about, well, what is this like if all of a sudden you have agents that you can't really tell if they're real or they're human making content for you? I mean, should these agents be allowed to, I guess, say ahead of time that I am not a human person, I am a, I'm an assist, I'm an AI assistant working this for you. Taking this over to VR, are you concerned about, uh, I guess, as VR gets better, what some, some of the political or societal pushback might be on, I guess, an agilist situation to what might run into a duplex? So one of the things we research in the lab is reality blurring. And uh, for example, we've published in the book in chapter two, we talk about a lot of the work that we've done with you know, children and adults about when a virtual memory, you know, gets mistaken for a physical one. And, and there is data that certain virtual experiences, uh, especially with younger children, you know, can become false memories. And I, I, I certainly, uh, you know, I, I often advocate for VR in a very particular way, which is, you know, not more than 20 minutes at a time, maybe a couple of times a week. I, I don't see VR as a let's read our email in here for eight hours a day type thing. And, and your point that as these scenes and these characters become better graphics, 
you know, more degrees of freedoms tracked if it's a real-time virtual human and, you know, more and more compelling, you know, how the human brain can differentiate, you know, these virtual experiences of physical ones is ones that we have to watch. You know, um, you know, I liked your idea of maybe watchdog organizations kind of reminding us when uh, these things are real or when not. And, you know, in the short term, I will just, uh, you know, remind our listeners that, you know, a little bit of VR is often enough uh, and, uh, you know, make sure you get outside, touch a wall, drink some water, talk to a person. These are all good things to do. You know, you said earlier that you were raised in the 80s. I was raised in the 70s, so I was a teenager when uh, the games were coming out in video arcade. In your research, I mean, when you, when you start looking at people, your generation, my generation, versus digital natives, the younger people who really, this is what they grew up, who, who did not know a world without an internet, do you find differences to how, I guess, generations uh, approach VR, whether it's just like, well, for a digital native, somebody who's never known anything but the internet, maybe there's less of an issue with working with VR where you still have some people, I don't want to say old farts like you and I, but people who had life experiences where there was an internet where still there's a little bit of hesitation getting involved with that world. Well, so the, the, the idea of individual differences, whether it be age or where you're from, country, uh, all sorts of demographic issues. Um, you know, at MIT Press, we've got the journal Presence. Presence is the landmark journal that uh, all of us, you know, are excited to publish in. And, and, you know, I'm an editor at Presence, and it's, it's really, you know, it's been where we look for the most relevant and central research to the field of VR for decades. And, um, you know, the, what's missing from the field of VR up until very recently are large-scale studies. In other words, to answer your question, which is, do, is there a generational difference in terms of how VR is perceived in terms of presence and, and philosophies of how long is too long, etc. You know, in order to do that, we've got to have a study where you've got hundreds, if not thousands of people going through VR to get large enough samples to compare demographic differences. And up until recently, VR has been extremely expensive and you know, not portable and, and hard to build. And you know, one study that we talk about in the book in chapter three on our empathy research is about um, one of my PhD students, Fernanda Herrera, has uh, accumulated a very large data set. She's now run north of 2,000 subjects. And for this study, she's going out into the world. She goes to senior citizens' homes, to flea markets, to museums, to schools. And what she is looking at is a very large sample that's not just college students to try to understand how do virtual experiences affect people who are not 19 years old, whether they're younger or or older, uh, different socioeconomic status, different races. And, and in this study, we are about to publish the first, you know, I think the first very large database of how does presence work with different types of people. And we will get a preliminary answer to your question about how do people of different ages respond to virtual reality, though, of course, uh, this is one that's going to require, you know, a good years of work. What is something that you think is important about uh, virtuality, say, in the next 10 years that isn't being covered enough by the press? Well, in the next 10 years that isn't being covered by the press, I guess from a technological standpoint, we think about light field display and light field capture where you're beaming you know, on, on the display side where light's getting beamed directly onto your retinas, uh, thinking about what the world looks like there. Um, from a societal standpoint, I would like to see more discussion of you know, what do we allow to occur in VR, you know, as a community, forget regulation from the government, but, you know, what's okay to do in VR and what's not, uh, you know, think about VR, you know, all the research shows the brain tends to treat VR as real, you know, what are the behaviors that, you know, 
we should think about not doing in VR, whether it's extreme violence or whether it's you know, certain types of unethical activities. We know VR is different than other media and that the brain tends to treat it as real. I'd love to see some discourse you know, about you know, what's okay to do in VR. Is there a URL where people can go to learn about the work you're doing? The best place to uh, learn about the work we're doing is to follow us on Twitter at Stanford VR. Jeremy Balenson, the co-author, along with Benjamin Lee, of exploring the influence of haptic and olfactory cues of a Virgil donut on satiation and eating behavior, coming out in the 2018 issue of Presence. Thank you so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Chris, it's been fantastic. Thank you. For more information about this and other journals MIT Press publishes, please go to our website, www.mitpressjournals.org. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2018, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.